so often as we go through life, we think that our ideas are enough to get us through any problems that we might face. We have our coping mechanisms, we know what we're good at, and when we find a problem we can't sort out, generally, yeah, we're smart people. We find someone who's going to fix the car, fix the roof, fix our taxes, whatever it is, unless it's our health, particularly if you're a bloke. Seeking help around a health issue is a different matter. When it comes to men, it's a different matter altogether. Even when the problem is insurmountable, sometimes blokes will just wave away well-meaning people who truly love them because they can see they're in pain. They're going, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. My guest today, Brad Guy, literally fell out of a plane and miraculously survived a skydiving accident. The physical injuries that he suffered from are one thing, but it's Brad's extraordinary story of how devastating a problem that PTSD became in his life and how he tried to self-medicate his way out of it. It's that which is truly compelling. I can relate a lot to Brad's story, not because I fell out of a plane, I've never done that. Uh, I've never been skydiving, don't think I ever will, but I'm someone who has also, I've dealt with survivor's guilt that can accompany PTSD. And I heard so much in Brad's experience that reflected my own. My ego didn't quite like it because, you know, my ego wants to believe that I'm a special snowflake and there's nobody else like me. I'm... No. Brad's extraordinary description, not only of his accident, but also the hypervigilance which started to control his life is something that is unfortunately all too common for people who have experienced trauma in their lives. Now, if you've been delaying getting help or there's someone you love who needs help for whatever reasons, but won't seek that help, this episode is full of brilliant, truly relatable moments that could just be the thing to change the status quo. Once you hear the kind of horror that Brad was living with day in and day out and what his life is like now, it's a strong case for the idea that there is actually a way to live your life that's not a constant spiral of pain. And that with help and a commitment to treatment, things can and will get a whole lot better. First up, though, we've got to play some ads. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I instantly accepted death. I knew that the earth was coming to hit me. I could feel us falling faster and faster. My gut had this disgusting sinking feeling, but the overwhelming feeling was guilt. My whole family were there to watch me that day. There wasn't any real like life flash before your eyes moment, but I do remember almost seeing it from their perspective. I, even in that moment, felt like I was putting something on them and I was like, they're watching me die. That is author and survivor Brad Guy. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. Better 
G'day, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday, making it better three times a week since 2013 by having a conversation with someone who's been there before. My name is Osha Gisberg. Thanks for being a part of the show. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, there's live gigs in Melbourne, live podcasts in Melbourne, which I'll tell you about later. Uh, but let's get straight into this. This is the incredible story of Brad Guy. Thanks so much for coming. Mm, my uh, pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you made it. You've, Thank uh, you. You, you've joined us in beautiful Sydney, New South Wales. I love it here. It's nice. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's our home. You're in our house. Thank you. Uh, you and I have something in common in that uh, radio is in our past. Mm-hmm. Yep. How did that That's start true. for you? <laughs> uh, just being a, a country kid with big city dreams. <laughs> no, honestly, I had always had a love for radio ever since I was about 14, 15. And what was it for you? Because I listened to the song that changed for me on the way home last night. I'm wondering. Ooh, yeah, I yeah. think the genesis for me was wanting to get into entertainment, but not really liking my visual. I was a very self-conscious kid. I was pretty overweight. I was emo. I was gay. Had just the trifecta of- That's a good country combo, that. Oh my God. And a private Catholic school education. So in regional Victoria, I thrived. Oh, also, I thrived. So I think radio God. came at a point where I just wanted to tell stories. Yeah. And I did a little assignment in like year nine media. And since then was like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. And went hell-bent on achieving, had a full Excel spreadsheet, every content director in the country, what their feedback was, when I can send a demo again. And And you were a teenager. Yes. When did you start sending demos? When I was about 18, 19. So I did all the community radio, community TV, and then actually got offered a job when I was 20 to do breakfast radio in Townsville and was all set to move. I looked at places to live and I got my flights ready. And then tragically, I fell in love and thought that was going to be the rest of my life. And it was my first boyfriend ever, had just come out, and it was like a big life moment. And I thought, this is going to be the man of my dreams forever. So I said no to Townsville. And then obviously, like, my life just went to shit after that and never thought I'd get back into radio. But luckily, I just was still hell-bent on this dream despite the challenges. Hang on, how long did the relationship that you said no to a radio job for last? I was like two months. Oh, <laughs> fuck. I know, I know, I know. And hilariously, when we broke up, I yeah. he had a glass door uh, for his front door at his house. Oh, and I was no. like, stuff you. And I just like slammed this door. It shattered into pieces. <laughs> Hang on, what? So you at, during take, you, so it was a big dramatic breakup moment. Yeah, yeah. After two months as well. <laughs> this is like first boyfriend. I came out because of him. Oh, yeah. And the Townsville job just came at such a weird time. But that was like the start of the rest of my life. So he says, oh, that's it. I don't want to do this, Brad. Yeah. And what happens? <laughs> I was so livid because I had turned down this amazing job. And to get breakfast radio gigs at 20 is very, very hard. Forget it. So I bloody slammed it. And when I got to the front door, dramatically tears through my eyes. I was like, F you. Ugh. And his entire glass front door just shattered into a million pieces. And we're literally on either side looking at each other. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Please tell me you just turned and walked and let that be the last thing. I did. <laughs> I yes! did. But then his housemate called me two days later and said, you need to pay for the window. <laughs> and I did. But well, that's, like, and, that's, and that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's no fair. one's getting cut. There's no blood. It's like, okay, it's not going to get better than that. I cannot add anything to this. That's as good a punctuation mark on this. Yeah. And you are very clear in my choice here of how I feel. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> I look, I'm a fair person. I will pay for what I break. <laughs> he could pay for the broken heart, but let's, oh, let's not go there. This is 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, bro. <laughs> I know. I know. Smooth. So, but but you did you did get into radio at some point. Yeah, I did. Yeah, after my whole skydive accident and learning to trust, just claw my life back into reality. Yeah, uh, I did do breakfast radio. I hosted Triple M in Gippsland for a couple of years. Wow, and was not mentally ready at all. Uh, was very much a traumatized person. <laughs> yeah, and leaving my safety network to move to Gippsland and host breakfast radio and you would know what it's like in the media, especially FM radio. It's very much like Paris Hilton, what's she done now? Click Taylor Swift song. There was not a lot of room for openness about mental health. Not at all. So I cherish my time in radio, but it was also a massive challenge. But it's also not the job. 
No. You know, people ask, they say, how come you don't, what are you doing shows like Mars Singer for? What are you doing like Bachelor? Why don't you make this podcast? It's like, because that's not the job. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, the job is to do the whispering or the job is to do the shouting. Mm-hmm. In Breakfast Radio, and which is I discovered, mm. uh, it's like, oh, no, the job isn't to talk about things like climate change or, you know, you know, fairness or equality. The job is literally to go, mm. all right, Justin Bieber's got a girlfriend. Here's a Ed Sheeran song. Yeah. It's 17 degrees. It That's that. the job. And there were so many challenges with me wanting to be open about myself as well. And very early on, the regional content director called my co-host and said, you need to not mention Brad's sexuality so much. Like, it's a bit extra. Because I'd say stories like, yeah, me and my boyfriend went to Ikea. Me and my boyfriend did this. Yeah, yeah. I was a little naive to all of that. And it just, I slowly started to learn that maybe this isn't the best outlet for me. This is less than 10 years ago. I know. I know. I've lived such a life. And then even after hosting radio, I produced radio at Fox FM, the breakfast show there. Yeah. And we've actually crossed paths a oh, few really? times, funnily enough. And having a career in the media is pretty crazy, the things that you get to do. Yeah. And I look back at it with fond memories, but it was also probably the hardest thing to do in terms of recovering from trauma yeah. to then be on breakfast radio. <sighs> it was just there's less high, There's choice. less high-pressure jobs. <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. Where- uh, Could have been a gardener or something, but no. My, you know, <laughs> the to have an adrenal system that's not ready to go from zero to a million mm. um, on any tiny little amount of stimulus is probably useful in that gig. And certainly yeah. if you're, and having, I, I for, the first thing I was diagnosed was PTSD. Mm. Um, when you're, brain is doing stuff like that it's tough man it's a it's a it's a tough yeah. thing it's, a, it's yeah. tough from other people's perspective because ptsd is so invisible mm. and i hated having to clarify myself all the time or when i had these reactions i think people saw these singular reactions i had panic attacks at the station under the desk i would call my sister or i'd call my co-host and be like oh someone knocked on the window because i had a boss as well who didn't really take my mental health seriously he would bang on the glass door of the studio so loudly when like an ad didn't play or something went wrong it's like mitsubishi warrigal don't need their ad played every single minute like if something goes wrong it's not the biggest of deals and i just felt so isolated. Yeah. Like I didn't have a chance to actually express myself and I felt like this crazy freak because day to day I could host a breakfast radio show, but tonight I'm going to cry myself to sleep before I wake up before I am to do it all over again. Yeah. The, the, the audio sensitivity is, um, it's one of those things that, and again, you know, PTSD is something that, yeah, you can't see. Mm. And so you don't know it's there. People are just being an asshole. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're not, they're just, the world that their brain is interpreting for them is incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. and a convenient and useful and easy to reach for reaction to danger is aggression. Yeah. And that's one way that it can be. It can also be it's an, an ad didn't play wise brain out of the desk. <laughs> it's yeah. just an ad, mate. Exactly. Uh, and, mm. but when it happens, your, your reactions, they're much like the, uh, the throttle on my, um, Harley mm. out there, the electric one jumpy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so Flighty for sure. there's only extremes of responses and it takes treatment. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't wait for it to stop. That's just how yeah. this is the state that I found. I needed treatment because I was like, oh, it's not changing. In fact, it's getting worse and these reactions are getting larger mm. and I'm only retreating further away into the cave or further into, you know, fuck off. Mm. Um, and this is not good. No. <laughs> and also the language around it, I don't think a year after my accident, I had the language to actually articulate what I was experiencing. Yeah. So obviously in the eyes of others, they just see this crazy reaction and think I'm some sort of mental freak. And then I put their perspective into my own mind and I shame myself. And you do have those good days where maybe you're not triggered as much, or maybe you can handle it. So you kind of convince yourself that everything's okay. But I had so many setbacks to my recovery because I wasn't acknowledging that this is a problem because... I was so sidetracked by my dream of being on breakfast radio <laughs> and eventually, spoiler alert, it didn't work out. <laughs> uh, I just crashed and burned. I had to quit my job to actually recover. But at the time, would not accept anything other than, no, there's something wrong with you. You're a freak. Just get on with it. You know, you've got to play the ads. Calvin Harris has to play. Scooplers after the news. You've got shit to do. You've written a book yeah. about about what happened to you. The book's called Freefall. Are mm-hmm. you okay to talk about what happened? Yeah. Are you, today is an okay day? Yeah, I think it? so. Okay. Yeah. So... Bear in mind, I have on TV that I've worked on, mm. it's a tandem skydiving date. I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Crikey. Four mm. times? 
Mm-hmm. How did tandem skydiving show up in your day? So I was 20 and for my 21st birthday, I got given a voucher, basically an extreme activity voucher with a whole bunch of choices. And it was just from a family friend, very normal thing for me to do at the time. I was an adrenaline junkie, I suppose, a dumb bungee jumping, breakfast radio, wanted to get into that, was a very, you know, charismatic, outgoing, bubbly person. So skydiving was the most normal thing for me to do. And I just went all guns blazing and decided to do it. But even on the day that my accident happened, I could feel anxiety. I I felt impending doom. There was something really serious going on. You're about to jump out of a plane. Yes. That's all normal. Well, I didn't think so at the time because I was like, why am I nervous? I'm not really a nervous person. And I was holding on to every sort of emotion, just trying to get through it. I was like, oh, God, I must be scared. I must be terrified. I just want to do it. And as it's all starting to happen, I'm getting more and more nervous really just wanting to smash my way through it and not really think about it. So do the safety procedure. They tell me what's going to happen, get strapped up. We go into the plane and we reach What altitude. was your instructor's name? Bill. Bill. Yeah. Did Bill look like he was a, a, a veteran of this game? Yes. Yeah. He was a very experienced skydiver. Uh, I, for, for, I, I don't know what it is, but I've done it like through radio and stuff like that. Like. I've been on those little airfields a lot of times. Mm. I don't know why those guys don't have a lot of hair. <laughs> They're so cavalier as well. I don't know what it is. Like, is it the adrenaline? Is it? Is it something? The, the velocity of oh, maybe. <laughs> but they have a they have a look. They, they have a way of like. Mm. Well, if if the only job that you can comfortably do is tandem skydiving instructor, there's no desk job <laughs> that is right for you. That's just if that. that's a level of stimulation you need out of work. But imagine that being your your day to day. Because fast forward until now, I actually met up with the tandem instructor as part of the book. I just wanted to tick everything off. We hadn't spoken since that day, and he literally went back to it maybe a year later once wow. he had recovered. So, funnily enough, I guess if I got injured at my day job, maybe I'll just go back to work. But yeah. it's so interesting how the different perspectives have such different outcomes. So did you get the extra package where you're filming it? Yeah, I got everything. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much everything was filmed. I got to choose the day I went, the time of day, the location. I was also the last jump of the day and they wanted to push me to another week. And I was like, no, no, it has to be today. So eerily enough. God, that's, oh man, that's that's an extra eight weeks of therapy, just that alone. Oh my God. (laughs) So many choices, so many choices. And before I get into what actually happened, there used to be this parallel universe version of me for the longest time that I felt like existed in my mind that didn't make all those choices. And that just existed alongside me that was like much happier and living a full life. So I don't really think about all those choices anymore because I can't, but literally maybe 10, 11 different choices went into that particular day. And what happened still happened. But Basically, we reach altitude and you're in this tiny rickety plane, as you'd know if you've gone skydiving. And it's basically- yeah, it's, it's no, it's, it's, it's no welcome aboard the 737. No, <laughs> it's like, this is, it's literally an old Toyota Tarago mm-hmm. that used to do a mail run <laughs> yeah. to Gympie and they was like, they bought it for cheaps. Yeah. And because a lot of these guys, they also get their pilot license hours up. So you've probably been flown up there by a learner, mm. which is fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, the old plates are on the back. Pretty so. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. That's how they. That's how they do it. They, you know, mm. they 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 couple it with getting their pilots' licenses, and they've stripped it back so they can carry as many passengers as possible. So there's nothing in there. There's no mm. sound baffling. There's no heating. No, that's the thing about PTSD as well. Is that your senses remember everything. Mm. So I remember what the height felt like. I remember the sound of the plane and how rickety it was. The fact that there's just a rubber mat and a bit of steel, and then underneath you is fifteen thousand feet. So everything I latched onto. And it's scary. I was the only one in the plane. I was the last jump and we're strapped together and he's edging me closer and closer to the door. And when the door opens, the force of the wind is crazy. It's like immense, my yes. shoes are almost coming off and I was terrified, of course, but I put it down to just being excited. Yeah. And when my feet are dangling over the edge, that's when he asks me any last words. And I've always had a dark sense of humor. And I said, I hope my parachute opens. And it's it's laughable now and I can laugh about it. But even the weeks leading up, like the Friday before uh, at work, before my jump, they're like, have fun on the weekend skydiving. And I was like, haha, I hope my parachute opens, lol. So I probably jinxed it, whatever, I'm here now. Uh, but I've always had that dark sense of humor. I probably made a gay joke as well with him, like right behind me strapped together. 
but that's it's been when... a while since I've been in a harness like this, Bill. <laughs> Maybe. You're, you're pretty good at your rope work, mate. <laughs> Usually it's a sling, but that's something else. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's a sling. <laughs> you've got to have a bit of levity in those moments. And... Mate, it's the only way to get through. You know, gallows humor is the only way you can get, get past a lot of stuff. Yeah, even now. If I don't make jokes, then I feel like I lose control over it. But yeah. I have the serious moments, I've got the jokey moments. That is one of them, of course. And that's that's one thing that people latch onto a lot with my story is, oh, well, you kind of jinxed it for yourself, didn't you? Oh, that's the, that's that's some sort of preposterous magical thinking, like, like, <laughs> well, as yeah. if magic's real. It isn't. No. Um, it's just you have reverse engineered the things that you did say into some sort of prophetic mm. Hollywood moment. No, you could have said, oh, I forgot to return my videotapes. <laughs> yeah. And the, he would have said, well, there's no blockbuster here anymore. And then... <laughs> You know? Yeah. No, exactly. You know, could have been whatever. So what are you looking down at? Which part of the country are you looking down at? Uh, this is Yarra Valley in Melbourne. So like, well, what's Yarra Valley? It's like green winery country. Well, what towns down there? Uh, like Lancefield or maybe more like Coldstream. Have you heard of those towns? Uh, is that like Wandon Valley? Like mm. country practice kind of stuff? Very that, very that. Yeah. Very much like droughty cattle winery. Sort of like typical country Victoria. Well, uh, like an hour and a bit out of Melbourne. Yeah, thereabouts, maybe an hour and a half. I'm from country Victoria as well, so more the northern part. Look, like I'm Bendigo. from Queensland, man. Country Victoria is, oh, it's 45 minutes away. Country <laughs> exactly. Queensland is five hours. So don't talk to me about country Victoria. <laughs> but it's also the coffee in country Victoria is also like from Melbourne, so it's amazing. So it's like we're not very like no. country in that respect. We no, have you all can the literally work has. in Bendigo, live yeah. in Bendigo and work in Melbourne and it's fine. We're very classy down there. It takes an hour to get to work. It's crazy. It's <laughs> nuts. You don't get that in Queensland. It's like you keep driving for an hour, you're still in Brisbane. <laughs> Mm. Well, that's the thing. And the, the landscape is very different. Like it's yeah. something particular to country Victoria where it's drought, it's flat. Victoria is yeah. very flat, unlike here in Sydney, which is just so beautiful, the typography. And I picked that particular area because I'm from the country and I love mm. those sort of rolling hills and I love the yeah. trees, the eucalyptus. It was just where I wanted to see from that sort of height. Yeah. And when you look at it from so high above, uh, it's like looking at the whole globe hmm. like you really feel like you see everything well and you see the curvature of the earth from that height it's yeah, pretty extraordinary so strange and you actually go through the clouds a Beautiful. little bit yeah. yeah so i remember really reflecting on why i chose a particular location even right before i jumped yeah and everything just seemed serendipitous until i actually did decide to leap from the plane and hope i hope my parachute opens did mm. bill go ha, ha. <laughs> yeah i know imagine was there a countdown uh there probably was a bit of a three, two, one. <laughs> so many of it's, it, the, the memories are very blurry. And it's funny because, like I said, the people that work in skydiving, they're so cavalier. Yeah. Like it's nothing for them. And I remember just like digging my heels in like, no, like I didn't want to, didn't want to jump. I was terrified mm. as most people would be. But eventually there was a three, two, one and off we leap. And you do feel the, the seven or eight seconds of free fall, like it is there and it does feel euphoric. It feels like you're weightless, but also yet really heavy at the same time. And you do feel like you're falling, which sounds obvious, but it's such speed and you're free. It's a really crazy feeling. I could totally see why people are addicted to it. But is, that, is seven seconds enough time to get to terminal velocity? I'm not sure, actually. Must be close. I think so. Must be yeah. pretty close. I would say the the more you fall, <laughs> the faster yeah, you go. <laughs> but there's, at some point, you can't fall any faster. No. Which I, is pretty fucking fast. It's like mm. hundreds of kilometers an hour. Well, what I expected as well was in the training procedure, they prepare you for a thrust because when you open the parachute, you're slowing down that velocity so much that often people are injured. Like there's, uh. you know, cracked ribs or bruising from the harness just being slowed down so much. So they prepared a brace for that. And the minute that didn't happen is when I knew something had gone wrong and we didn't really slow down. There was maybe a, a slight movement, but I don't remember any slowing down happening whatsoever. And then in that split second moment, I knew that something terrible was happening. Was Bill communicating to you? Eventually, yes. So I didn't feel the first thrusts and that's when I was able to look behind me and there's just so much scrambling going on from the instructor and... It looks like there's just like a floppy parachute. Like just, it was white. It's just like this closed white parachute. Was it la the large one or the little one? It was the first one. Yeah. Okay. So eventually both parachutes do deploy. Uh, the first one got tangled in the second one, the emergency parachute. And that's when the shaking happened. We're just shaking violently. So. What do you mean shaking? Well, because the parachute didn't open fully, it was kind of like partially open, but mainly closed. It was still catching the wind, uh -huh. but that's what was causing us to shake. 
you know, if you drop something with a ribbon on it, you know, from a height, you can see the ribbon go crazy. So it's mm. kind of like that. So, so I'm just trying to, just, I'm just trying to get my head around that. So the, these parachutes, they're the rectangular shaped ones. Yes. Okay. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, is what happened is that like the edges of it, almost like a plastic bag stuck together and mm -hmm. then the air couldn't get inside it to allow it to inflate. Yet the wind is still catching this meters and meters and meters of fabric, which is causing the line underneath it to kind of oscillate violently. Mm -hmm. And you and Bill are at the bottom of that. Yeah. Just rocking mm -hmm. it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I get it now. No, it's exactly that. And seeing them both tangled together and just the the shaking I knew wasn't meant to happen. And we're shaking so much, I literally lost a shoe. The harness was coming so loose. The first thing that Bill was saying to me was, you know, keep your feet up, keep your feet up, because he didn't want the bottom of the harness to fall out. And the whole time it felt like the longest thing, but also the shortest thing. And I just remember hearing his screaming and the grunting and scrambling, because he's either trying to cut the parachute, he's trying to open it, he's trying to work with the wires. And I can't really see behind me, but I can just feel like there's elbows going, there's like my neck. So he's doing everything behind his back because mm -hmm. you're underneath him. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're, he's able to roll backwards and try to sort it out. And with the shaking as well, it was impossible to yeah. do. Are you Basically, spinning as well? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, so the you're literally seeing fields and cows and eucalyptus trees just <laughs> swirling beneath you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I knew that that was the end. You what know? happens in your body at that point? The first... The the first emotion I remember feeling was guilt because I instantly accepted death. I knew that the earth was coming to hit me. I could feel us falling faster and faster. My gut had this disgusting sinking feeling, but the overwhelming feeling was guilt. My whole family were there to watch me that day. I had my boyfriend at the time, my three sisters, their husbands, my niece and nephews, my mum and dad all so were watching. Kids are there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they were young. They were maybe like between five to eight. There were four of them at the time. And your parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they all watched me there and there wasn't any real like life flash before your eyes moment, but I do remember almost seeing it from their perspective. And I've had so much time to reflect on this, but I, even in that moment felt like I was putting something on them and I was like, they're watching me die. I'm coming to the end. And once I hit that ground, I'm, I'm going to die. Isn't it interesting how even in a critical moment like that, mm. the deep automatic self-reflective thoughts are so powerful. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extraordinary, like the idea of like, mate, stop, you know, don't don't feel guilty. It's like, I would love to, but I'm literally facing death. My brain, that's the first thing it goes to and I can't change it. Like yeah. how hardwired those things are into us. And it gives you an idea of how much work it takes to unwire those things afterwards. Boy, mm -hmm. never heard it explained like that. Was there a sharpness of sensation? Like did things become very clear? Did colors change? No, nothing like that. It honestly was so visceral yeah, and yeah. I felt super present. And I think what happens with trauma, uh, at least in my case, not only is it the physiological rewiring, but it's also the burning of these sensations. I so easily remember the sound, the sensation and the, the elbows going in my back and yeah. the, the whistling of the parachute and like the shaking and the vertigo. Yeah. They're so easily burned into me now alongside the rewiring, but it was very cognizant looking yeah. back. And you would think, cause I've spoken to other people in near death experience situations and they see the light or they see someone they love and they have these really cool experiences. <laughs> I feel like I missed out. Basically, I just, I knew death was coming. I knew pain was coming and it was 100% a certainty even in that moment. And I, I look back and I don't, can't believe I even had time to process it because it was so fast, but 100% absolute guarantee that I was going to die, and I knew it. My gosh. Mm -hmm. And is is Bill saying anything, like, here it comes, or? No, nothing like that. It was more just, he did yell a lot to keep my feet up uh, for the harness, and there was just the continued scrambling. If you're in an uncontrolled descent, I'm assuming there's highways, farmhouses, suburbs, power lines. You could land anywhere. Mm -hmm. Where are you heading towards? So we landed on a golf course. Wow. And that's Think such a good point you make because <sighs> that's often skipped over. So many obstructions, trees and the road, sheds. It literally could have been anything because we were about two to three Ks away from the actual airfield. Oh, my goodness. And he was able to maneuver us to a golf course. So we landed flat bang on the ground and the what, force of the impacts. What, what was it like? Like the ground just, I'm assuming, this specks of things suddenly is extraordinarily yeah. large. It's basically like getting hit with the earth. Yes, exactly. That's kind of what it felt like. It was it was seismic. It's funny that people call it a fall because I didn't feel like it was, it didn't feel like a fall. Because you weren't moving. You had no sense of 
yeah. moving. The world was moving. I yeah, get it. it was, yeah. The earth just shattered me, just hit me across the face. And the pain I remember feeling was the most agonizing sensation I've ever felt. It literally felt like my spine had been ripped out of my body from the bottom. It was completely on fire. And it's weird. I don't know if you've broken bones in your life, but you know when you feel something inside you broken? It was like my back was completely jumbled up. Even in that instant, I was like, holy shit, something's gone wrong. I didn't even really comprehend that I was alive in the were initial on, split seconds. Were you on top of Bill or Bill on top of you? Yeah, I was on top of him. So, oh, so we, he, la- you, he spun you around, so you landed on top of him. Yeah, it's hard to say what the landing was actually, if I landed straight on my back or if we landed sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a bit of movement that got us to the embankment of a lake that was on this golf course, but we were strapped together. We were perpendicular. All my injuries were upper body, his were lower body because of the way we landed. And even coming to, I was so winded, the impact, I couldn't breathe. I was gasping for air horribly, hysterically sobbing. There's a parachute on top of me and like all this this wiring and these hooks and everything. And being semi-submerged in the lake as well, it was freezing in the middle of Melbourne winter. Couldn't feel the lower half of my body, even in that instant. So split second, oh my God, my back is on fire. Next split second, I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my body. I'm a paraplegic. Next split second, Bill is unconscious and I'm laying on top of a dead person that I'm strapped to. And even the guilt continued there because I felt like I had killed him. I just accepted the responsibility of it even then, in the moment. So can't really say how long it was that we were there. It felt like eternity, but acceptance and acceptance upon more acceptance of I'll never walk again my body is destroyed, I'm on top of a dead person, and am I even alive? So your whole family, extended family, are watching. What was their experience at this moment? Uh, It slowly started to be unraveled uh, over the past 10 years, and the guilt is still something that I I deal with. Obviously, I've got a lot more management over it now, but it was pandemonium. It's it's like, I'll tell you that, it had nothing to do with you. I know. (laughs) Everyone says that. that. I know. And I know you know that. Yeah. Yeah, But there you can remember, there's another person telling you, it had nothing to do with you. Thank you. I'm cured. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da! Okay, wrap it up. No, they- Like, and unlike my psychologist today who had a schedule change and I couldn't make the thing, I won't charge you 240 bucks (laughs) for not being able to show up because your schedule changed. Good, good. Well, if you buy a few books, maybe then I can afford it. Uh, (laughs) There's definite collective suffering. It was pure pandemonium when it happened. And they were They're crying. seeing the shoot not open? Yep, they saw everything. What did they describe? They thought I was dead as well. They were so unsure what was happening. They were asking the people at the airfield, what's going on? Where are they? They didn't know what was going on. The people in the airfield just bolted. And then my whole family, one sister vomited, another sister was fainting. They just did not know what was going on. And they had to get in their cars and drive to where they thought I was. But they were hysterical. And they have told me over the years since that they thought I was dead Mm. as well. How would you think anything else? Yeah. And they saw everything and they knew something was wrong from the minute they could see it. And I'm so often visualizing it from their perspective. And I think they try to protect me by not describing it too much. Mm. But as part of doing the book, I have to know, I need to know everything. I I have to confront that. But they suffered trauma as well. Mm. And luckily the silver lining is it has brought us closer together Mm. and we're more aware of mental health and they did have to look after me all the years since, but they also suffered from seeing my death, basically, not knowing for ages that I was okay. Who's the first person that got to you? Uh, It was my sister and my mum and my brother-in-law. So we've got three sisters with my sister Jess and my boyfriend at the time. They came running over the hill and as I'm getting airlifted into the back of the ambulance, lifted into the back of the ambulance because a bunch of golfers had seen us. Ah. So three golfers come over in a buggy. They were able to separate us and Bill had eventually come to, while he was coming to, I was holding onto his hand. I was like, Bill, please wake up, please wake up. Not knowing that he was okay or not. He eventually does come to, he's screaming in pain. We're both just hysterically yelling, strapped together. Luckily got pulled apart. I was so unsure of what was happening. They had called an ambulance. And as I was getting lifted into the back, that's when my family were there. They had literally parked somewhere on the road, had climbed a fence, were running. My mum's in her late 60s. She ran all that way. And even that memory for me was uh, was burned into my mind of not being able to look anywhere. My head's just straight up in the back of the ambulance. I can just hear their voices saying, we love you, you're going to be okay. We love you, we love you. And just completely broke down even in that moment. And I could hear mum just trying to yell at me through tears 
and I could tell that she was distraught. My sister was distraught. Mm. And that kind of was another affirming moment of my guilt even because I could hear their suffering. And so many moments looking back were just cementing the guilt further and further. Oh, further. Even the, I know, I know, I know. It's, it's, it's harsh, but you punish yourself when you go through trauma. I was lucky that I had them there in a way that they could kind of share what I was going through and they have that perspective. But even then, as I'm getting into the ambulance, I, I felt the guilt. Even So you said you caught up with Bill years later. Mm-hmm. What did Bill tell you that he was all the elbows you were feeling, what was he up to? He was terrified as well. Yeah. Uh, he told me that he thought it was the end also. Sorry, it was a very intense meeting. I'll bet. Uh, I had put it off for years and years just because I didn't feel like I needed to know and I didn't want to confront it. I didn't want my perspective on it changed. I was so scared that he'd be like, oh, get over it. You know, I went back and I was fine. Not that anyone can change my experience, but I was just worried that it would be minimized even though I don't really know him personally, but I always went to the worst case scenario. But the details that emerged from that day, him thinking that it was a very dire situation for us, he did everything in his power, despite what had actually happened. He tried to get us away from obstruction. He tried to get us to land in a way that was going to be the most safe. But he does recall that the shaking was so violent that it was impossible to get a grasp of where we actually were. He didn't even know that we were on a golf course. You know, It wasn't like, oh, let's go there. That looks safe. It was pure instinct in that moment. And his injuries were equally as severe as mine. He broke both his legs and his pelvis and was in hospital for a little while as well, had to do physical rehab like me. Mm. So he basically had mirroring stories and it was confronting to meet him again, but it definitely was a lot of closure for me. And I, I felt humbled that he admitted that he saved my life that day. I think that just puts a nice little, it, it, gives it something positive. There's a Mm. positive spin to it instead of all the tragedy of this thing went wrong. Now it's something went wrong, but someone saved my life. Mm. That to me is a slight reshaping of the narrative that does make me feel a lot, a lot more peace with it all. Being in a hospital, like you're, you're rambunctious 22 year old, like it's all happening, you know, 21, 22 years old. It's all great time to be alive. Um, Everything still works, you know, mostly if you're lucky, you can still see and, you know, your dick still works. You can still walk (laughs) up and down stairs, you know, you you don't, you don't grunt when you're lifting up the groceries. And I'd imagine you were fairly immobilized. Mm, Yeah. I was on the precipice of my life, Osha, like radio was just about to happen. I just got an amazing job in breakfast radio right before the accident. I was only there for a month and had been in my relationship for six weeks. My second relationship had come to terms with myself a lot more, was making plans to move from the country to the city. I was even expecting apartments in Richmond and I really wanted to live in that suburb. Everything was going so well. And the complete opposite happened after the accident. I was in a neck brace and back brace for four months Mm. after breaking my upper spine, fracturing my lower spine and tearing the ligaments in my neck. So I wasn't mobilized. I couldn't really look after myself. I needed assistance with going to the bathroom, with feeding myself, was on hectic painkillers, endone oxycontin, didn't know what day it was, immense night terrors. So many times throughout that four month recovery, if not every night, every time I closed my eyes, I could feel myself falling. Mm. And mum would come in my room after I've had a night terror and I've ripped posters or like thrown things and she'd have to physically restrain me. That four-month initial period was so, so dark, and I didn't want to see or hear from anyone. Mm. And it was in that four-month period that I eventually did lose the will to live. Oh, no. And it's it's detailed very graphically in the book, yeah. and I don't need to go through it super graphically right now, but I got to that point where I felt like such a burden on my family and on myself. Everything was ripped away from me that I didn't see any point in going on, and I shudder to think of that person then that made that decision nearly because my life has been such a blessing since. But once I'd stepped away from that sort of ideation, I really started to value my life a little more and realized that I've got to mourn the old Brad. That old Brad's not coming back. Mm. There might be an essence of him that may return, but I've got to rebuild again. And it was at one foot in front of the other sort of process. But considering that I've gone from the darkest depths to where I am now, it doesn't really feel believable or real, but that's what that trauma did to me. It got me to that place because the guilt was so overwhelming and 
That, that could have been an alternative title for the book was guilt. Yeah. And that's the most misunderstood thing from other people. Is oh, that- man, survivor guilt's a huge thing, man. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge thing. Yeah. Tell, tell me about, like, obviously you've got back braces and neck braces and you've got, you know, occupational, you've got OT, you've got everybody. Mm-hmm. At what point did the psychologist step in in that kind of situation? There's a counselor in hospital that they gave me. <laughs> I was still struggling to actually understand what happened. It was when clinicians would come into my room and say, oh, you're the parachute guy. I'm like, you're the skydive guy. I was already on the news that weekend it happened. Because I had people text me saying like, oh my God, are you okay? I saw you on Channel 7. I was like, shit, like publicity, but also scary. <laughs> this is all happening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> always, always had the ego. But the clinician said, we think you should talk to someone. I was like, okay, I don't know what we're going to talk about. And when they said- Such a fucking Aussie bloke. <laughs> I know. It was At very... the end of it, you're <laughs> such a country bloke. And what are we going to talk about? I know. That my former self. Well, now it's like everyone can know about my issues. It's now yeah, it's in the book. Yeah. But I remember feeling so confronted by this counselor who said, here are my suspicions for what I think you might have. Even in the hospital, which was like PTSD, insomnia, uh, night terrors, anxiety, depression, like all these things. I was like- Oh, I'm a freak. I've always had rose-colored glasses before then. Right. Besides being fat gain emo in a private Catholic boarding school, I hadn't really gone through anything so deeply traumatic like that. And to have these prognoses put in front of me, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like not only everyone saying, oh my God, you're that guy, the parachute guy, but then a, a clinician saying, I think you've got all these mental health issues. My entire world shattered open. Yeah. And I wasn't even physically able to go to a therapist after hospital until maybe six or seven weeks after. Mm. Did one session during that four months. It was way too hard to get in and out of the car. So I basically saved it until the year after. So wow. maybe like a seven or eight time. months after. Mm-hmm. I was so physically incapable that I couldn't even do therapy. And a scary thought reflecting back, because I do therapy now if I'm coming down too hard. You know, if I'm having a really bad weekend, it's like, let's go see the doctor. And to delay it that much really played a big role in yeah. actually how I recover. And I wish I was physically able to do it sooner or even just like telehealth, which was less of a thing back then. I could have processed it a lot better because I was still very confused as to what's happening to me. Yeah, I lost the zest for life. I wasn't sleeping, didn't know what day it was, didn't want to see anyone. Every time I close my eyes, I'm reliving this experience. Didn't have the words for it. And I really wish I had. Uh, you mentioned sensations burned in. Did you have, I don't know, like I'd imagine like going up, not that you would as an adult, but if you ever got on a swing, the mm. falling sensation at the top of the swing, things like that? Yeah, yeah. Like when you jump in an elevator, uh, oh, very yeah. that feeling, and you feel it in your gut. And even now the anxiety, I feel it so physically. Uh, or When I feel triggered, I feel it all in my stomach. And when you have that sensation of falling, I could feel that, like when you get too close to the edge of a balcony. And every time as I'm trying to sleep, I would feel it. That's why my sleep was wrecked and really wasn't taken care of until maybe (laughs) two years ago uh, and still is an issue for me. But the sleep was horrible. When you're not sleeping, when you're on Oxycontin and Endone, when you're in a neck brace and back brace, you can't move. Mom has to help me shit. It was just mayhem. Uh, Getting off those meds is hard. That's a, that's a whole different story. That's a whole other book. They wouldn't even give me anymore when I tried. I remember feeling so devastated. I was out of the braces and I went back to my country GP and I said, time for more endone. And she basically said, no, people get too addicted to it. I don't want to get hooked. I was like, what is this crazy person thinking? Like, how am I going to go through my life? So there's like this sobering moment of weaning off the medication, getting off the back brace and neck brace, yeah. having to learn how to walk again, how to drive again. That was just as hard as being stuck in my house for four months because everything had to reset, not just emotionally, but physically had to reset my body. And that anyone that's done physical rehab, like kudos to them because it's so, it's humiliating, it's shameful, it's frustrating when you feel like a baby that can't do Mm. everyday normal things, especially considering what I was before. But that whole mental and physical recovery, it really hasn't ended, but those initial six to 12 months were awful. To, to people who are wondering, like, how would you describe PTSD? Mm. For me, it feels like when you're asleep and you're about to wake up or you wake up a few times and you're waiting for your alarm to go off and you check it and it's like, oh, it's not going to go off to 6.45 and it's only 6.30. Do I sleep more? Do I stay awake? So you're kind of drowsy through physical exhaustion, but you're anticipating something. For me, PTSD has always felt like this hypervigilance where I'm anticipating the worst possible thing. 
And I call them death visions. It's something that I still experience where I experience my death multiple times a day, whether it's a car's going to crash into me, I'm stuck in this elevator forever, that crane's going to drop something on me. It's that constant expectation that leaves your body in this level of alertness. And being in that state 24-7 is so incredibly taxing and it reverberates into every part of your life, your speech, your attitudes, your energy levels. And to go through that, like the past 10 years, I've only started to really get a grip on it now. Uh, It just, it takes everything away from you. It's like in a horror movie where you're hearing the suspense soundtrack come on, you know something's going to happen. But that forever. Never stops. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peele is running the show the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) Self-medication was a big part for me because uh, the work that I needed to do, ah, I could do it, but it was hard. Mm. Beer. And and that worked until it didn't. Yeah. Um, So was that a part of your story? It is a part of my story. Uh, I don't go too deep in it with the book, but... Yeah, I lent very heavily on weed. I'm a former functional stoner. I smoked every day for five years. And that was probably maybe 2016 onwards and only quit a couple of years ago. Feeling super proud of myself for that. I've never really said it out loud. I've never been asked that before actually either. Uh, And I'm grateful that you do ask, but I was also a party boy. Uh, So Read into that what you will. (laughs) Exactly. I'm still a party boy in a lot of ways, but I've gotten such a better grip on all of that but back in the day especially after my accident me and my ex we would have crazy crazy weekends on a saturday night be partying up until like sunday night i wouldn't sleep i'd have to somehow drive all the way to gippsland from melbourne and not sleep stay in my bed just wide-eyed and then come six o'clock styrofoam sprout and mandy thanks to your local tulsa stores i did that week after week after week and my relationship at the time was abusive because my ex was going through so much. His dad was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer Oof. when we met and was slowly deteriorating. And we all became full-time carers. And him, for me, was a beautiful man who really took me under his wing. And we had a real connection during my recovery, just talking about immortality. When the family was so tied up with things, it was us having you know, a coffee in the backyard. He was a big man, so hospitable. We really connected, and as he started to slowly deteriorate, our relationships just got abusive and sometimes physical to the point where on the weekends when we're coming down on the train home after being at Revolver for 12 hours, we would just have these crazy fights. And then I'd say, stuff you, drive all the way to Gippsland, host breakfast radio. It was a vicious cycle, and I didn't know I was self-medicating at the time, Mm. but I was distracting myself with everything else but my recovery. I felt like, no, I've got to be a support. I've got to support this family or I've got to focus on my career because that's more important. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a crazy freak that gets triggered. I never allowed myself to feel my feelings and put my recovery first. Right. And the, the, you mentioned, uh, you know, marijuana mm-hmm. and that's certainly a part of my story. Yeah. And that kind of drinking or using or partying mm-hmm. for people around you, you know, certainly, you know, people around, around me. And I would say this to anybody, it's like the, the hardest thing is the people around the person that's experienced trauma but hasn't processed it is that amount of self-destruction is the best idea they've got Mm -hmm. it they're not doing it because they they want to hurt themselves they're like as frightful as this is and how dangerous this is it's better than not doing it Mm -hmm. because not doing it is unbearable and that's the thing that a lot of people i don't think particularly if people have been through trauma and are using either alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or shopping or whatever yeah why would you do that why would you do that because that's the best choice i've got Mm. because to not do it is so horrible i will do this thing that is so risky and so dangerous as dangerous and risky as it is because it's the best I can do right now. Totally. And that's a hard thing to do because people want to believe in, oh, you've got a choice. You fucking don't. Yeah, I fully <laughs> didn't see choice. That's such a good way to put it. Like I didn't see myself at this crossroads of, do I go out and get cooked for 10 hours on a dance floor and pash a billion men? Or do I read a book at home and maybe talk about PTSD with a counselor? No, I didn't see a choice. And when it came to weed as well, I was pacifying myself because it stops you from having dreams. So night terrors, tick. Stops me from feeling physical pain. Tick. Two major things I struggled with. So I saw a solution mm. uh, and I had attached a lot of positivity to it. And it wasn't until five years later where I thought, oh, this is really holding me back now because I've got shit to do and shit's not getting done. I was phoning it in after I left radio 
And I had to have, give myself a real wake-up call where these decisions I thought I was making, even though they felt instinctual, weren't really working out for me. But I don't blame former Brad for doing those things because if you see a solution, there's a shortcut to it and it works, mate, lean into it. It was the best idea you had at the time. Mm -hmm. I used to make a joke that um, if you plotted my career path of time versus when I put the bong down, <laughs> um, it just went like this. <laughs> it just went like kapow the moment I started. Yeah. And, and then like, and then I was, you know, you want to legalize marijuana? Go right ahead. You know, but yeah. understand what it is. Like, mm. yeah, you can. Alcohol is legal, but understand what it is. Oh my you god! Know, if it takes someone's volition away, then what happens? You know, for, mm. five years would go by for me. Like years would go by, and nothing changed. Yeah, uh, you know, just the problems I had just got worse. Tell me about what the first glimpses of things getting better started to feel like. I remember the first moment where I felt hope was seven months after when I finally got the okay for my physio to walk, which sounds very, very simplistic, but they said, okay, you can walk unassisted and I want you to walk to the end of your driveway. I thought, okay, I can do that. So the next day I got home, walked to the end of my driveway. And with the more appointments that I had, the more confidence I got, he said, yeah, just try walking a bit further each and every day. And I did. I got to the end of mum and dad's street and then eventually got to the end of the estate and then got to my sister's house. So my niece and nephew would wave from the window. I got further and further every single day and just pushed myself, just playing the cheesiest music to try and amplify the motivation I needed. And that was the first time I felt like, oh, I can actually do this. Right. I'm doing things again. I'm having guests over. I'm driving my car. I'm feeling like breakfast radio might be on the cards again for mm -hmm. me. I was seeing the pathway really like light itself up. But it all started with being able to physically put one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. And that was a major turning point for me. And that was seven months after. But obviously the physical rehab was long and arduous. But just being able to walk for yourself. Yeah. We take walking for granted Mate, I spent so three, much. I spent three months on crutches last year. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it was my shoulder, my right shoulder still fucked yeah. from, from that because uh, I couldn't put any weight on my right leg. And it, it stays with you as well, like oh, the yeah. muscle memory. I actually had RSI, like repetitive strain injury in my neck about three months ago just from the gym. And I couldn't move my neck for about a week. And it freaked me out because right. I was like, I'm in the neck brace again. I had no mobility and it really put me back in that negative headspace. So mm. My health and my mobility now, I really, really cherish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, if you go partying for 12 hours and you're dancing for that long, your back is going to be crooked. And <laughs> to take it back to the medication or self-medicating, I was not looking after myself yeah. in the best ways and was doing terrible things to my body. But not giving yourself the best chance to, to heal. No, not at all. In I, any way. And I didn't know what healing was. Yeah. I honestly didn't know. I thought I was done. I was like, okay, well, I can walk again. That's kind of it. Ah. But I had to keep putting in work. So yeah. that perspective I have over my mobility and my health now is completely different than it was when I was 22. Just a moment away from Brad to say that we've got a couple of gigs coming up in Melbourne. We are doing two shows in a row at the Malt House Theatre. Two podcasts, one ticket. Tickets are on sale now in the show notes. You can find the link there. Sam Wood is one of my guests and so is Claire Hooper. One of them is going to be a, a kind of a regular kind of podcast like this, but another one's going to be a uh, fun kind of musical thing I'm going to do with Claire. And I really uh, love you to come and be a part of it. She's brilliant, fantastically funny human being. And she's got a show coming up at the uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which we do too. NTNN NNN returns for its second run at the Comedy Festival. And there's uh, more details on the way. We're back to Brad in just a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, 
Well, you said the word a few times. You said the word triggered, mm-hmm. and it's um, you know, it's used as an abusive term often. Yeah, but I just want to be sure that we're, we're talk- that everyone understands what it is we're talking about. It is literally a sight or a smell or a sensation that is completely benign that sets off a chain reaction that you have no control over that sends your body into a state of extreme either fear or paranoia or anger or or, or fury or rage or or something like that. Mm. And you can be aware of it. You can be like, oh, I'm dealing with this. And you can be completely aware that like, it's fine. It's just an elevator. Yeah. But now you have to deal with the next six hours of your body being in this space. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about you know, once the weed and all these things were out of the way, what did you learn about down regulating? What did you do about learn about getting out of those spaces or being with those mm. those feelings? I did a ton of therapy, which was very useful. Uh, I didn't know how to relax. I didn't know how to bring myself back down to earth. Excuse the pun. And I will not excuse the pun <laughs> because you only get to really be a person who can make it. Like I can make a back down to earth pun. Yeah, but it's just a dad joke. Yeah, when someone who survived a skydiving accident. <laughs> makes a back down to earth pun. That's fucking gold medal oh, look, right there. That's my A material. <laughs> it's that, and sometimes I say the gravity of it all. Oh which yeah, is so immense. we'll get those PDs <laughs> back on. The, we'll get the content directors back on the line. We'll send them a oh, air check. It's my great. new demo. <laughs> yeah, the triggers for me. I had to learn how to overcome them because they were so frequent. Yeah, and it really spilled out away from heights, or away from wind, or away from skydive. Funnily enough, the amount skydiving comes up when it's your biggest fear is incredible. Every music video, every breakfast radio slot, it was skydiving was everywhere. So you're hyper alert to it. Yeah. yeah you see it. Yeah. So because I was getting triggered so often, I, I had to overcome it. I had to find a way to regulate it. And I learned that you're not going to get rid of triggers and you don't have to like source your entire world to see when and where they're going to come up because new ones will come up all the time in different levels of severity, but you can't be alert 24 seven because your body will start to crumble. Mm. So my main therapist at the time, when I was going through a lot of my rehab taught me about mindfulness. And at first I didn't even know what that meant, but I think it gets thrown around a lot where it's like, just be mindful. What does it actually mean? But she actually gave me such good practical tips on how to do it. And for me, that was tapping into your senses. So what can I see? What can I hear? What can I touch? All of those, tap into those and they're grounding techniques that actually bring you back down to earth, the pun again. And that took practice because I wasn't very good at it because it's very hard to do when you're already triggered mm. and you're having a panic attack at work on the Fox FM world famous rooftop right before an event, which has happened at a one night stand. It's happened. It happened at a one night stand. Oh my, oh my God. God. Everywhere. Osha, everywhere. That's a boner killer. <laughs> actually though, actually though, uh, and that's its own trigger in a way, but triggers that they've happened everywhere, everywhere you could imagine. And it is very hard to bring yourself back down when you're so accelerated, but it just takes practice. It's wild that you're th- like, what do you mean feel my feet in my socks? Mm. You don't understand. My heart's beating through my chest and I can't breathe. Yeah. But after a while, like, oh, the feet in my socks is real. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm thinking about, there's actually no evidence at all, mm. that is real. So I'm just going to have to go with the feet in my socks, as real as the other thing feels. Mm. And that's a real challenge because why would you ever question how you sense the world? Yeah. And that's that's a real leap to mm. get to, isn't it? We ignore a lot. We ignore a lot in our everyday. And I try to practice mindfulness all the time. Uh, and one thing that really helped me was they call it microscopic thinking. So with the feet in your socks, think further into it. It's like, what do I feel? Do I feel the cotton? Do I feel polyester? There's a hole in there. You know, these shoes aren't that comfortable. They're my leather shoes. Just hone in so, so deep. It's almost like you're distracting yourself with something that's so redundant that it doesn't really matter. And it does take you out. You're diverting your thinking. And I just learned about guided mindfulness, which is similar to guided meditation, where you can actually listen to someone saying, find something green in the room or look for the nearest triangle. And I did one the other day and it was amazing because I feel like the senses, I've really practiced that to death now. Let's let's take it up a notch. Mm. Ready for module two. Uh, so the guided mindfulness was also really helpful because it's different every time. Because if you get used to it, then maybe you get a little bit too accustomed and it doesn't work as effective. But being able to look for things in your real world is so helpful in just stopping your mind from going to places that it doesn't need to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, you're very aware that a lot of this stuff is still around mm-hmm. and still 
affecting you, but you seem quite committed to living life without it. Yeah. It's an ongoing process. What would you say to people who are listening and they're like, oh, I never really did anything about that. Mm. I, this thing happened to me and I just kind of went back to work or you know, I lost my child and I just kind of carried on. Yeah. What would you say to people about not treating this sort of thing? There's just so much to unlock when you start to look inside yourself. I see myself as just this infinite well of knowledge. The more I push myself, the more I'll know, and knowledge is power. And it did take me a while. I shamed myself for thinking, how can this still affect me 10 years later? Oh, man. But people say like, yeah, 20 years later, 30 years later, it's still a thing. So I accepted that my healing is so personal to me. We don't all start from zero. No. So I can't compare myself to anyone else. I've only got my own experiences. You, you met the person who went through exactly the same thing mm. you went through and your experiences would have been completely different. Yeah. And even following you for the past few years, like I have your candidness, I found so helpful. It's refreshing. And it's like, because you have, obviously you've got a persona and we all put on these personas. You're, you're Osho from The Bachelor, but you're also <laughs> this real person uh, in this house in Bronte, which is beautiful. There's many sides to us and it's okay to keep the healing just to yourself, mm. but it's honestly never too late the mantra that I have only recently learned that I'll practice for the rest of my life is that I am not what happens to me, but I am what I become. And what I want to become is this incredible version of myself. And it's happening because I put my thought in doing it. And the other mantra is I'm not responsible for what happened to me, but I'm responsible for my healing. So it's up to me to get the life that I want, but I've got to believe that it exists. If I say, oh, like, I don't really care. Like, it's not going to happen. Or like, I'll just put it off. Mm. You're giving yourself 0% chance. But if you say, this is what I want for myself, it's going to happen if I keep trying, then that's 100% chance. All you have to do is keep trying. And you're going to fuck up. I fuck up all the time. My body literally broke down two weeks ago. I couldn't shit or eat for three days because I was so overwhelmed with all the press I'm doing where it's like mm. suicide, trauma, you died oh, nearly. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like feeling shameful that I wasn't this 100% perfect trauma survivor robot, but I can't be that all the no. time. I'm going to let my feelings happen. I've got to let the fallbacks happen. Stop signs are not hurdles, they're guidelines. It's going to be fumbly. It's going to feel like shit. You're going to cry, but the reward at the end is worth it because I'm fucking here up with yeah. Osher Ginsberg on his podcast. What a gift. <laughs> I'm I glad you're here, mate. furiously voting for Cosmo DeVito 15 years ago, <laughs> watching you on Australian Idol. Sorry about and her now nodules, I'm here. mate. Sorry about her nodules. I couldn't. <laughs> and it, was, it was 21 years ago to make you feel older. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I think what you, you know, you, you, you touched on a few things that are, are really important, but the fact that you wrote the book mm. is, like, that's the reason I started this show is in 2013, I didn't know that it could be better mm -hmm. until I heard people who were where I was and were now where I wanted to be. I didn't hear those conversations, particularly about sobriety. I didn't hear those conversations growing up. Yeah. So I didn't believe it was, could have been a fairy story. Similarly, when I got sick and I was dealing with passive and active ideation and all kinds of shit, like I couldn't believe there could ever be any different. Yeah. My brain was as black as this wall mm -hmm. and there was no other color that was ever going to be possible. And I started hearing people who'd, oh, what? What did you, what did you do? Because I'm, okay, I'll just, I can't do this. So I'll just try something, anything that mm -hmm. isn't what I want to do. So let's try that. Yeah. And by writing your book, by talking about it, you're, you're helping people everywhere who are listening right now who've been through stuff that haven't been sorting it out because it's, you know, big T or little T trauma doesn't matter. It's a rock in your shoe that is just going to get bigger mm -hmm. and you've got a long way to walk. Yeah. <laughs> so you better sort it out. And pain is part of it. And yeah. I just want to be that living proof of the other end of it. Yeah. And I'm not perfect because even when I started writing the book, I wrote it because I thought, I was a finished product. I thought, I feel really healed. Let's close a chapter. <laughs> but what I discovered through writing, besides all the healing of confronting everything from my past, was that healing is infinite. It will go on forever. Yeah. And that's actually a beautiful thing because you get to continue to learn. Yeah. I'm learning 10 years later about that day and I'm learning about putting my trauma in all these different lenses of interview, in uh, author, in yeah. uh, public speaking, all these different lenses. Yeah. It's amazing to keep learning from that because it's making me better and... I want more for myself. I can't believe that I'm alive and actually wake up with that gratitude now. And I wish I had more of me when I was going through my trauma. So really the book is a way to give back and just show hope. And it's so easy to compare yourself. I literally compared myself yesterday when I did the Today Show in the green room with two Paralympians. And she was asking me all these questions. It was kind of hilarious. She's like, oh, like, what, were you, did you die? Like, what did you see? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't die. She's like, oh, so are you able-bodied? And I was like, 
yeah, I, I'm able-bodied. And I was like, what the fuck can I say compared to these two people? But your trauma is your own, no matter how bad or worse. There's no ranking. Your feelings are your feelings. Your instinct is what you've got inside you. My head's not going to control things anymore. How my body feels is what is real. So don't shame yourself for what you've gone through. Enable the pain to come and go. It's going to be hard, but there is reward because if I did it, then that's living proof that it's possible. Do you think about death? All the time. I'm very aware of my mortality. And how do you feel about uh, it now? Uh, it's kind of slay. I feel super happy. I'm just grateful to be alive. I do experience my death all the time. I was stressed the other day on the plane. and I was like, oh, this is probably going to go down. I had a good run. So I'm very aware of it. And it's very flippant now, but I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of pain and survival. But I also got to like stop shaming myself. Of course, I'm going to be scared of those things. I fucking fell from a plane. I'm so sorry I started swearing now. Mate, are uh, you kidding? I've, I've been swearing since you said that. <laughs> it's the passion. But this is what I care about. I care about enabling yeah. people to achieve their dreams. I went from doing the Today Show yesterday to doing Osher Ginsburg today. Like all these gifts are coming to me because I mate, put I'm the no body work in. I'm no Carl Stephanovic, yeah. mate. Come on now. <laughs> to me, I'm, you I'm are. Literally <laughs> sit, I'm literally sitting here in a pair of shorts and socks. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Full like, anchor, man. A lot of people don't think about about their death and the concept of memento mori is is mm. one that I, you know, I consider. And as hard as it is, I try to think about my wife and my kids dying every day. Yeah. Not as a grim thing, but as a, because we really don't know. You know, we, we were chatting before I started rolling tape and being on the bike or the motorcycle, you just see people just nearly die every single time on the road, looking mm -hmm. at their phones, just walking fucking everywhere. Like you don't have any idea how nearly dead you were. Yeah. And it's, no one woke up this morning in Australia thinking, I'm not going to die in a car crash today, but someone did. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's the thing, man. <laughs> yeah. I think it's okay to be aware of death. I, like, it's a part of life. It's a process. It happens. Yeah. Right now in my life, my dad is really sick and in a wheelchair and just had this crazy spinal surgery. And I'm, of course, thinking about that stage where he's not going to be around because it's a guarantee. So, Dad, I've still got the bottle. I can lend it to you, mate. <laughs> yeah, you want to mine's, upsta mine's upstairs. <laughs> Here's a joint. <laughs> might help. But I, I have to be aware of these things yeah. and learn about that it's a natural fact of life. Just like when, when you recover, pain is going to be part of it. Setbacks are going to be part of it. But there is a reward when you put the work in. And I want to be that example at the end that you, you'll be an imperfect, traumatized person, but that's your superpower because now you've got all this strength to draw upon. There is a beautiful life at the end of it. And for me, that's the lasting message of the book for sure. And thanks so much. Thanks Thank for you coming. so much. My and, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to talk about your the fact that you've got a parachute tattooed on your I forearm do. another time. <laughs> um, thanks for coming by, man. No, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> that was Brad Guy. The book is called Freefall. It's a freaking good read. There's a lot in there. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you got something out of that. Turns out a career in broadcasting can help you tell your story pretty well, and he certainly does a good job, and I really related to so much of that. And it was good to be reminded of, uh, sometimes my ideas of how to get through this aren't the best ideas of how to get through this, and maybe I should go and talk to someone who's got better ideas than me. It's always good to be reminded of that, because I know I can, uh, I can fall into that trap. Thanks so much for being a part of the show today. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. Thanks to everyone that helped me make the show. Thanks to Andy Ma on audio and video post-production. Abby Benno, who produced the show. Monica and Ben for keeping the lights on at OGTV. And of course, Tohider, who made all the music. Have a great week. See you Wednesday. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.